0: The Bible says give honor to where honor's due. What God has done through Rob Salvato at this church, Calvary Vista, over the years is nothing short of spectacular. Can we give him a round of applause because it's amazing. Wow, I'm about to sneeze here for, for in a minute. So sorry if I do during... The middle of this message, but before we get into our text, I want to show people that there is hope in San Diego because a lot of people think California is a hopeless place right now, especially coming on the news again yesterday. So I want to show people there's some serious hope in at Calvary Vista. So on the count of three, would you guys all say hi and be crazy? One, two, three So good, I love you guys, I love you, I love you. This is going to be fun. So I'm going to give like a 25-minute message. I'm going to share from my heart. I am looking at the clock right now because the mind can only absorb, but the seat can endure. We're going to go after it. So you're clapping for the 25 minutes. I like that. Okay, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. So. Basically, I'm going to share with you 11 chapters from my book as we study through the scriptures together. Uh, I have a new book out called Flirting with Darkness. It's about building hope in the face of depression. So if you know somebody or you yourself struggle with anxiety depression or suicide ideation. I wrote this book for for that context and that situation. So I know a lot of you are watching online. You can get it on Amazon if you would like. Um, but I'm also going to be right back um, in the foyer courtyard area just as you walk outside to write little hope notes in your book if you'd like to do that after. So if you can't keep up, we're going to go fast uh, don't worry, you can read it more in depth and more slowly in the book. So turn with me to Ephesians 3 and let's cover a lot of this. Um, you know, this last April, as compared to last April, there was a 1,000% increase And incoming calls for those in emotional distress, according to one federal emergency hotline, because nearly half of Americans are reporting that COVID-19 has harmed their mental health. So we're in a time where we really, really need hope. And even before that, there were 123 suicides a day. According to USA Today, two times as many suicides as homicides and one suicide out of every 40 seconds. So people are trying to find a Sputnik 5, the cure to COVID, or what's the panacea to cancer or social activists trying to cure AIDS. We need somebody who's going to cure suicide. And I really believe that I found the cure. And that's why I wrote this book. That's why I'm here. I'm so passionate about sharing this message with you. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 14. Paul writes to the church of Ephesus, Ephesians three fourteen. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. Let me read that last verse again, verse sixteen: that you that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit. In the inner man, Paul is writing this passage from Rome, from prison. And he's writing to Ephesus, quick backdrop, backdrop against which this book was written. Ephesus was a luxurious, wealthy city. It was known as the Bank of Asia Minor. It connected commerce from east to west, it had about a half a million people that lived there. One of the ancient wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis, 220 years in building. It also had a theater that sat 50,000 people. Ephesus was known as the capital of the eastern part of the Roman Empire. Through this church, the funnel of all the other seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 were actually started. Through the church of Ephesus. It was even known as the third Christian capital behind um, Jerusalem, which was the center for Christianity, and Antioch, where they were first called Christians. So this is a very powerful church. And Paul, as he's praying for Ephesus, he, he bows his knees to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Nearly 50% of the book of Ephesians, roughly 50%, is a prayer. So Paul is praying. Now watch this. He prays to who? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven, that's church triumphant, according to theologians, and earth, that's church militant is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. Elsewhere, Paul called this the unsearchable riches of Christ. Why? Because Ephesus was the, the bank of Asia Minor. You can even walk the same marble stones that Paul walked on to this day. It's one of the most profound archaeological digs, in my opinion, topographically in history. But what's interesting is he uses a lot of fiscal, economic, monetary terms that they would understand. Fullness, inheritance, elsewhere he called them unsearchable riches. So he's praying that by the riches of God's glory, that he would grant the church of Ephesus to be strengthened with might by the power of the spirit in the inner man. Friends, What you need is not pity from people. You need the Prince of Peace in his presence to get his power. What you need is not to be a snowflake generation. You need a kick in the pants, and so do I. We need to learn how to be strong strengthened with might by the power of the spirit in the inner man. Because if you think you wake up to a cruise ship when really it's a battleship, you're gonna be surprised when fiery arrows are coming your way. And so our snowflake generation is so depressed. Sociologists tell us we're the most depressed generation ever. I don't know who interviewed the 14th century Burgundians to corroborate that fact, but basically we're a depressed generation. And so we have to understand that the only way to get out of depression is to fight our way out of it. The only way out is to fight through. The only way out is to be strengthened with might. By the power of the Spirit in the inner man. So I want to clear up two quick taboos when it comes to depression. One is that it's a stigma if you're depressed that you are not strengthened with might. In fact, you're weak if you're depressed. Failing to realize that Moses was suicidal. He said, God, if you continue to treat me this way, take my life. Job said, I wish I was a stillborn. Elijah sat under a juniper broom tree in a cave after outrunning Jezebel's chariot, who would paint her face at the end of her life. She was like a female it clown. And he says, God, take my life. I want to die. And then God made him take a nap and gave him some food. Friends, there are very few things a good nap, a good prayer time, and a good meal will not solve. But Elijah was suicidal. He said, God, I want to die. David was bipolar, if not borderline, when one minute he's dancing in his linen ephod before the Ark of the Covenant, and the next minute he's saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jonah wanted to die when a worm ate his plant, and Paul said, we despaired even of life. Even Jesus said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death in the Garden of Gethsemane. So if you struggle with depression, you're in the company of some greats, so do not think that you're weak. On the other hand, there's this other taboo against hope where people say depression is, is a disease. I, I hear this. Depression is a disease. It's very trendy and hipster to basically say like, oh, I'm just a four on the Enneagram. I'm being my authentic self by being depressed. There's no cure for this thing. But what did the Psalmist say in Psalm 42 verse 511 and then in Psalm 40? Three, verse five, he's repeating the refrain. Why are you cast down O oh my soul? Hope in God. That's what he said. He didn't say, why are you cast down on oh my soul? Keep up the good work. Keep staying depressed. No, he said, why are you cast down on oh my soul? Hope in God. I believe there is a cure to defeat in depression and it's found in hope in God. So what we need is to be strengthened with might. As Paul is writing this from prison, this is, these are not easy circumstances. He's not lifting weights, watching ESPN like post Johnny Cash. Prison reform. We're talking about a guy who's in a dungeon right now, and they they they, they would stack prisoners on top of each other, and they'd separate them between great uh, grates back then. So the guy on the top, when he goes to the bathroom, what happens to the guy on the bottom? We're talking about horrific, horrendous ancient conditions, and yet Paul prays for them that they would be strengthened with might by the power of the spirit and the inner man, when he himself is enduring hardships as a good soldier for Jesus Christ, as he told Timothy to do. So I want to encourage you that what you need is to become Navy SEAL Team 6, DEFCON 1, MI5, Green Beret, Paratrooper, Army Recon, like, uh, or Marine Recon. Uh, you need to become like heroic, stoic, joyful soldier, happy warrior, lone survivor, Marcus Luttrell, American sniper, you know, Chris Kyle, Chad Williams, SEAL of God. David Goggins, can't hurt me. Take up the helmet of salvation. The sword of the spirit which is the word of God. The shield of faith, which can quench every fiery dart of the wicked one. The breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. Fight against principalities, powers, and spiritual wickedness in high places. They have the high ground, but we know victory belongs to us because Exodus 15, 3 says our God is a man of war and the battle is not ours. The battle belongs to the Lord. So we have to fight red in tooth and claw. We have to leave everything on the field. We have to dig in our heels. We got to fight our way out. I'm not going to massage the ego of the snowflake generation anymore because it's not working. We're so depressed. We have to fight, fight, and fight some more. So I'm going to arm you to the teeth with 11 weapons you need to defeat the dark Lord of depression. Are you ready? Okay. So these are 11 chapters from the book, which I'm going to try to tackle in the next 17 minutes, 18 minutes, 17 minutes. Here we go. Miracles happen. Number one. These are the 11 weapons that God used to help me out of depression over my, you know, over 10-year stint with chronic depression and suicide ideation. So if God could heal me, and he has, he can heal any one of you. First weapon, prayer walks. Everyone say prayer walks. Scientific research has now confirmed that when you talk to God about your hopes, fears, and dreams, it has the same effect on your brain as therapy. Paul said, be anxious for nothing, Be anxious for what? For nothing. But in everything, with prayer and supplication thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I was telling the the young people this Friday night, but you know you can talk to God about anything. You can even gossip to God. God's not like, oh my gosh, she said that about you? Like, what a juicy deed. I had no idea. No, God already knows. There's these things called imprecatory psalms where the psalmist would pray, God, break the teeth of my enemy, dash them against stones and stuff. God's like, that's what you really think about them? No, listen, remember, when you, when you put somebody on your prayer list enough, eventually they're going to get off your hit list and you're going to pray blessing on your enemy. But first, got to start praying about what's really on your heart. The Bible says that Moses spoke mouth to mouth, face to face with God as a man would speak to his friends just walking with God talking to God like not oh thou holy jehovah would thou wouldest thou put a hedge of protection around me and thou Art the Lord who hath given me traveling mercy. Really? Is that how you talk to people? Is that how you talk to a friend? Jesus said, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. Quit the religious posturing. Talk to God like a man would speak to an almighty friend. You are besties with the maker. You are chill with the almighty. Come boldly to the throne of grace. There is healing in your time of need. Can I get an amen? Amen. Number two, this is a long one. Scripture scholar scuba gear. So I'll repeat that. Scripture, scholar, scuba gear. Now we're going to get rid of the jet ski, you know, skimming off the surface of the water of the word. Now we're going to put on our Navy SEAL tank and we're going to go a little deeper because a lot of people know Romans 8, 28, Philippians 4, 13, and John 3, 16. But friends, there are over 3,500 promises in the Bible. Like, did you know that Zachariah said, this is a promise. Turn ye to the strongholds, ye prisoners of hope. Even today do I declare that I will render double unto you. No matter how many problems you have, there are even more promises. So don't just settle with jet skiing across the surface of the water of the word. Go deep with your seal tank and realize that no matter how many problems you have, there are over 3,500 promises in the scripture. Cling to those in your time of need. That's what got me through. You cling to the promises. Number 3. We're going to try to do this without notes. So let's see how this let's see how this goes. Number 3, the magic number of greatness. The magic number of greatness. Malcolm Gladwell in his book Outliers in chapter 2 wrote something called the 10,000-hour rule, wherein he was studying the psychologist John Hayes that found that basically the magic number of greatness is 10,000 hours of practice into any given craft. Whether you're studying master criminals, science fiction writers, pianists, celloists, or hockey players, it takes 10,000 hours to master a craft. So the Beatles are a prime example. The Beatles were terrible. I don't know if you know that, but they were originally horrible. What made them amazing is they played this club in Hamburg, Germany, a rundown club, seven nights a week for eight hours a night. Let me say that again. Seven nights a week for eight hours a night. Probably felt like eight days a week. But the Beatles were terrible before they went to this club in Hamburg, Germany. They were amazing, their biographer says, by the time they left. Watch this. The Beatles played more live shows before they ever came to America than most bands do in their entire career. So when they come to San Francisco Candlestick Park, when they go on the Ed Sullivan show, everybody thinks, oh, there's these mop top boys from Liverpool with the X8 factor. They're just charismatic and they look good like One Direction. That's why they're famous. Actually, they outworked, they outworked everybody. They outworked everybody. That's how it works, friends. Why did Paul the Apostle write more books than any of the disciples that were with Jesus physically for three and a half years? Why? Because Paul said, by the grace of God, 1 Corinthians 15, I have worked harder than all the other apostles. He just outworked them. Proverbs in the New Living Translation says, work hard and become a leader, be lazy and become a slave. Again, Proverbs says, hard work means prosperity, only fools idle away their time. Again, a lot of people think that work is the result of the curse. But if you think that, you're going to be depressed from nine to five, Monday through Friday, 40 hours out of the the week for 40 years of your life until you hopefully retire on 40% of your income with your 401k. What you have to realize is that work is not a result of the curse no pulling up weeds by the sweat of your brow getting expelled from the garden of eden was the curse but god was called adam was called to be a worker to be a gardener before he ever ate the forbidden fruit before original sin was original blessing so the curse was that he was expelled from the garden to work by the sweat of his brow that was adam so jesus is called the last adam and he goes back into a garden the garden of gethsemane and the first place the last adam bleeds is from the sweat of his brow when he sweat great drops of blood to reverse the curse and redeem man's work as the last atom redeeming, the first atom, showing you that your work matters. So stop crying. Start sweating. Sitting around existentially navel gazing is not going to solve your problem. Stop overthinking. Get out of your head. Here's a key. Stop looking for happiness. Start looking for purpose. Hone a craft. Number four, endorphins anyone. Endorphins anyone. That's number four. Paul was always talking about sports. You had the Pan-Ionian games in Ephesus, where he was writing to. You had the Isthmian games in Corinth. You had the Olympic games in Athens. Paul talked about running, Epictine Ominos, a racer going hard out for the finish. He talked about, in Hebrews, whoever wrote that book talked about endurance running. Uh, nobody knows who was the author, but endurance running. Of course, we have uh, Paul talking about the mastery, wrestling, boxing, shadow boxing, fighting. He was constantly using sports metaphors, it would seem. Why? Paul would have had the ESPN app. He probably would have watched First Take. He would have been tracking with what Justin Herbert's doing with the Chargers this year. Paul was using sports metaphors. Why? Because sports metaphors are so important when it comes to your spiritual walk. There is something so powerful about pushing your body to its limits. When Jesus hiked in a desert for 40 days without eating food, I'm not talking about an Instagram juice fast where he's like, I'm fasting, but really I'm drinking five smoothies a day. No, he had no food for 40 days. Hiking through the Valley of Devastation, Jeshimon, it was then that he turned down the archetypal temptations and then came down to do his first miracle. What I'm saying is there is healing in exercise, in physical athletic exertion. Science now tells us that a 40-minute jog has the same effect on your brain as an antidepressant. That's scientific research. Why? Because when you exercise, you activate um, endorphins in your body, which trigger opioid receptors in your brain, which help minimize discomfort or natural painkillers and are akin to the drug morphine without any of the negative side effects. That's why one of the things that I love to do is I do regular Navy SEAL training with my friend Chad Williams, who was SEAL Team One, SEAL Team Seven. He just puts me through SEAL training. We do surf torture, boat training. We charge the waves in our boat and keep getting toppled over. He'll put like he'll make sure there's like these weighted chains around our bodies as we do pull-ups with weighted chains, or you know, carrying weights up hills with the horses running around. People are like, why would you do that? I don't. I, I that's the the moment I feel clearest in my life is after SEAL training because if your your body is capable of so much more than you think. And if you're willing to push the limits a little bit, it will clear the cobwebs from your brain because you're releasing endorphins. Whether that's seal training, whether that's a 30-minute walk, whether that's a 40-minute jog, whether it's playing hoops or just lacing up your shoes and going outside. We don't even go outside anymore. Uber Eats, Amazon Prime, Netflix, Shelter in Place. Of course we're depressed. Go outside and get some exercise. Number five, can I get an amen? Okay, number five. Number five, this is a big one. Rewrite your story. Everyone say, rewrite your story. A lot of millennials right now are having a quarter-life crisis. We've lost the plot. I don't know where I'm going with my life. But what you have to remember is Psalm 139 says, all your days are written in God's book. Malachi says that if you speak words honoring God's name, he hearkens, the word hearken in Hebrew is used of a dog's ears that perk up when listening to the voice of its master. And he writes them down in a book of remembrance. And then Hebrews 12 says that he is the author of our faith, the author and finisher. And spoiler alert, Revelation says all tears will be wiped off of our faces. So when you're going through a dark plot and a difficult narrative arc, just remember a happily ever after is coming. Number six, own your oddness. Own your oddness. Your oddities are your commodities. Paul said we glory in weakness. Nehemiah said God turns the curse into a blessing. Let me illustrate this. There are three individuals by name in the Bible that are left-handed. Now, back then, to be left-handed was considered curse. Not today. If you're Tua, you can throw better passes for the the Miami Dolphins because you throw off the defense being left-handed, and you have a better chance politically because six of the last 13 U.S. presidents were left-handed. But be that as it may, back in biblical times, Old Testament times, being left-handed was a curse. Now, there are three left-handed individuals mentioned by name in the Bible, and they all come from the tribe of Benjamin. Do you know what Benjamin means? Son of my right hand. So all the southpaws come from the right-handed tribe. So not only were they cursed, they were weird. They didn't fit in. But maybe you don't fit in because God intended you to stand out. Maybe you're different because God intends you to make a difference. Maybe when God made you, he didn't make a mistake. Perhaps he made a miracle. And if you start realizing that, you're going to learn what Ehud learned. What's that? Ehud was one of these left-handed individuals. He snuck into the presence of a king named Eglon. Eglon was the king of Moab who was oppressing Israel for 18 years. Eglon, the Bible says, was a very fat man. Now, when you use the adverb very, and the Bible says thy word is truth, we're not talking about exercise. We're talking about extra fries. This guy's like the body is a temple, and sometimes we add additions. Eglon, like he looked like an egg. Job of the hut. This guy had his own zip code. So anyway... Ehud sneaks into the presence of Eglon, stabs him with a dagger. The dagger disappears in his fat. He goes out and kills 10,000 lusty men of Moab and saves Israel after 18 years of oppression under Eglon's wicked regime. How did he do that? Well, scholars believe it's because TSA or Palace Guard Security back then, they didn't usually frisk a guy's right hip. Why? Because if you're right-handed, what hip do you draw your sword from? Your left hip across your body. Why would a cursed southpaw be in the presence of a king? He would have his sword on his right hip. That's how he was able to sneak his dagger past the palace guard, evidently because they didn't frisk his right hip. So his curse became his blessing What seemed to be his disadvantage was his military advantage so he could perform this assassination. And I'm just telling you, what if the very things in your life that make you odd are the very things that God uses to take you to your destiny? So stop performing cognitive dissonance and trying to project some image to the world that isn't who you really are because that's going to make you very depressed. Instead, own your oddness. Number seven, friend ventures. Friend ventures. The Bible says that Daniel had an excellent spirit. Why? Because he hung out with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were excellent friends. Spirits are transferable. Proverbs says, if you walk with the wise, you'll become wise. But a companion of fools will suffer harm. If you run with skunks, you're going to smell like one. If your friends are Larry, Curly, and Mo, then you shouldn't be surprised if things go a little sideways on you. What I'm saying is the Bible says in the early church they were constantly devoted to fellowship, which means koinonia, koinonia. I don't even have to meet you. I can meet your five closest friends and I can tell you who you are and where you're going because I just average them out and I'll get you. We become like who we spend the most time with. You all know that. So I just want to encourage you and I just want to tell you, I have my phone on silent, but I heard a phone up here go off. Am I going crazy? I don't know. Maybe I'm going crazy, but be that as it may, it's really fascinating how uh, for over 10 years, I was really depressed because I hung out with depressing people. Wow, what a revelation. (laughs) If you hang out with depressing people, you're going to be depressed. Are you tracking with me? I'm not talking about your friends or who you work with. I'm saying the friendships that you would choose to invest in, the voices that you let speak into your life, be around hopeful people. Do you know what healed me of a lot of the trauma I went through? After a series of tribulations in my life, I got diagnosed with complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Basically, just after my brother died and after my sister died and after I almost committed suicide several times and I have this stalker who follows me around, caused a car accident a few months ago because he uh, has been protesting my dad since I was a kid and now he follows my speaking schedule around. It's pretty gnarly. And a pastor friend of mine committed suicide and I went through a romantic heartbreak after an eight-year relationship. After all this stuff happened, I started to, things started to get a little weird for me. Like I thought this world is really a bad place to be. And one of the chief things that helped me was not people who got on their knees with me as great as that is. It wasn't people who gave me a deep prophetic word, as wonderful as deep prophetic words are. It was literally people with their skateboards who didn't talk to me about all the horrible things that happened in my life. And they just started showing me that life could be good, that life could be fun, that the fruit of the spirit is joy. Get around those people because I'm telling you, friend ventures with God and squad might just save your life. Number eight, heaven, heaven. What do you do when people you love die? what do you do when you're about to die? Can you have hope even then? Conversely, if you want to be really miserable, listen to what Paul said. If we do not believe in the resurrection from the dead, Paul wrote, we above all men are most miserable. The secret to being the most miserable person ever is to not believe in resurrection. Jesus said, you believe in God, believe also in me. Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. He said that to his disciples when he said, don't let your heart be troubled. The word troubled in Greek is literally shudder. Don't let your heart shudder. Don't have a heartquake. Heaven is coming. Listen, science now validates, and this maintains majority support, that people all around the world, even in secularized cultures where belief in God remains relatively low, People tend to believe in an afterlife or some persistence of consciousness beyond death. How do you explain that? There's no social utility, evolutionary principle, or Darwinian explanation that can explicate why we love in the present people who died in the past. It's because Song of Solomon says, many waters cannot quench love. Love is one of the great metaphysical arguments and apologies for the immortality of the soul. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has put eternity in our hearts. That's the only way you can explain it. God hardwired our hearts for eternity. That's why people all around the world just tend to believe something happens after we die. Why? God did not put the desire for heaven in us to frustrate us, but to fulfill us. Number nine, Elroy. Elroy. Say, what is that? Does anybody know what that means? The God who sees. The first time a character in the Bible named God with a nickname was an Egyptian immigrant slave girl named Hagar who was dying in a desert, and she said, You are the God who sees, when God rescued her, Elroy. What's interesting is a lot of people cut themselves because through sublimation and transference, they're trying to move the pain from their mind to their body to distract their thoughts. And so in cutting themselves, it's a, it can be a bid for attention where they're saying, does anybody see me? And by the way, one of the, my, one of the things I really want to clarify is people say they're just threatening suicide because they want attention. And I say, absolutely, that's why they're doing that. If they're so depressed that they're threatening to kill themselves, if they don't get attention, that is not a cause to judge them. In fact, that is a cause to love them all the more, to give them more attention, more focus, and more concentration because we all need to be seen. We all need to be seen. You are Elroy, the God who sees. Jesus said, if, you see, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Who's the Father? Elroy, the God who sees you. Jesus sees just what you need. I mean, if you look at the story of Peter who denied Jesus three times next to a charcoal fire, what did Jesus do after that? He built a charcoal fire and had Peter tell him three times that he loved him. Why? He's doing the modern technique of psychodrama. Centuries before it was even invented, he's walking Peter through his topographical triggers, retraining his brain and reframing his pain so that when Peter thinks of his traumas, the charcoal fire and the number three, he's not reminded of his tragedy. He's reminded of his triumph. What I'm saying is the Lord is Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. He has the healing balm of Gilead. He sees what you're going through, and he sees the cure you need. And sometimes, like in my case, God will see you through the eyes of professional help. He'll see you through the eyes of your counselor. I have no idea where people got the idea. You shouldn't go to therapy. That's wrong. Actually, the Bible never says that. It says the opposite, that in the multitude of counselors there is safety. The more counselors I can get, the better. And Elroy, the God who sees, will sometimes use human physicians, and sometimes he'll give a a spiritual word and sometimes he'll use endorphins and sometimes he'll use prayer walks and sometimes he'll send friends. But either way, know that that's your God is. Your God sees you. Number 10. I'm already a minute over, but I'm almost done. Number 10. Let God love on you. Did you know the Bible never says that the disciples were amazed at anything Jesus did? It doesn't say they were amazed that Jesus walked on a lake, fed 5,000 people with a lunchable, or rose from the dead. In fact, when he rose from the dead in the story, it says some people doubted. Wouldn't that be annoying if you rose from the dead and some people doubt? You're like, that, that was, I don't have anything left in the trunk. Like, that was the grand climax. Like, yeah, we, we, we don't buy it. It doesn't say they, they were amazed at anything he did, except for one time. The one time was in John 4. It says they were amazed that Jesus spoke with a woman. Why? because it was a Samaritan woman. And Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. In fact, Samaritan women in that troglodytic, Neanderthal, knuckle-dragging, caveman, patriarchal paradigm believed, when they objectified women, that a Samaritan woman had less value than a man's donkey. That was Jewish culture. In fact, the Jewish, there was a Jewish rabbinic saying that if you as a Jewish man or rabbi prolonged conversation with a woman in the streets, you would in the end inherit Gehenom. So you're going to hell if you talk too long to a woman in the street. What was Jesus' longest conversation with a woman, a Samaritan woman? And it says the disciples were amazed. Why? Jesus always goes after the oppressed. Those on the underbelly of injustice, those pushed to the margins, those pushed to the fringes, those ashamed, those who are destitute, the prostitute, the tax collector. He goes after those people. So if you feel like you've been forgotten or pushed to the margins or you're sort of the scum of society or the dregs of the earth, can I remind you that God loves you? The Bible says anxiety in the heart causes depression, but a good word makes it glad. Here's a good word. God is love and perfect love casts out fear. Let God love the heavens right into you and the despair clean out of you. Sit back, relax, and let God give you a sloppy bear hug. Number 11 and finally, dreamality. As we strengthen you with might, with your 11th weapon by the power of the spirit, dreamality. A lot of people say in Christian circles, you shouldn't follow your heart. Why? Jeremiah said the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things who can know it. That's true if you're living in the old covenant. But what is the new covenant? Ezekiel says he will replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And Hebrews says that on your regenerated heart, God will write his laws on the table of your heart. So if God's writing his law on the table of your heart, should you listen or no? Absolutely, you should listen. What is God writing on your heart? If you have a regenerated heart, as you're walking in the spirit, as you enjoy the joy of being enjoyed by God, what is God writing on your heart? Because Paul said, I have not been disobedient to the heavenly vision. Joel and Acts say that young men will see visions and old men will dream dreams. Proverbs chapter 13 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when the desire comes, it's a tree of life. The psalmist said, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Psalm 145, 19 says he will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. Psalm 37, 4 says, "'Delight yourself also in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart.'" Psalm 20, "'May the Lord grant you your heart's desire.'" Psalm 21, 2, "'The Lord has granted me, the king, his heart's desire.'" What's the desire that God's putting in your heart? Dreamcast, visioner, live in a dreamality because if you're not living out your God-given vision, Paul said, I've not been disobedient to the heavenly vision. If you're not living out your vision and the dream that God put on your heart, of course you're gonna be depressed because you're too busy listening to what other people are telling you you should do when the new covenant is, no man need teach his neighbor, know the Lord. You shall all know the Lord from the least to the greatest. He will be your God. You will be his people. He has written his laws on the table of your heart. That's what Hebrews commands and tells us to do to listen to what God's writing on our hearts. So don't fear failure or worry about what people say. Be true to the vision that God gave you. There it is. 11 weapons to defeat the dark Lord of depression. And I want to encourage you, my friends. We are not going to be the mope generation. We are going to be the hope generation. The reason I live on airplanes and do this is because I, I have the cure. <laughs> you're like, you're crazy, Ben. I know, but I I know, but it's like I gotta tell people. I gotta tell people this thing, it, it it will it will work. It will work. If if God could heal me, I promise you he could heal anybody. I remember at my worst point in depression, I thought I could see like these witches with distorted faces laughing at me. And I was like seeing them in my mind, and that's when you know you have mental illness. And in that moment, I'm like, I felt like a demon from hell lit my brain on fire and I I like didn't know what to do. And if God could heal me, I'm not just coming up here saying, oh, this sounds like a nice message to give. This saved my life. God saved my life. And I'm telling you this because he can do that for you. Do you understand what I'm telling you right now? He can do that for you. So do not give up. That's the center of everything. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you give us the, the tools we need to defeat the dark Lord of depression. Let's all stand together, my friends. I pray for this church right now as we stand in your presence, that you would strengthen this church as Paul prayed for Ephesus. We pray to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ from the whole family in heaven and earth, his name, that according to the riches of your glory, you would strengthen Vista, Calvary Vista, with might. In the inner man, by the power of the Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.